Would you uh, turn with me in your Bibles to Ephesians, the first chapter of that letter? As you're, as you're turning there, you know, I recognize that this morning part of this is getting to know me a little bit. And so we'll start off with just a, a fun little fact about me. For about 20 years ago, I had a chance to live out a childhood dream. I got to be a firefighter. And uh, I was a volunteer firefighter in the town where I grew up. And we had about three stations. It was a pretty good-sized department. And we'd get called out maybe 1,500 times or so a year. Had this little pager with me. And anytime I wanted to be available, I could turn it on. And there'd be a little tone, drive to the truck, grab my gear, or gra- drive to the station, grab my gear, jump on the truck, and go. My very first run, uh, no lie, was to get a cat out of a tree. Um, <laughs> Man, that thing shredded my shirt. Their laughter shredded my dignity. Um, but I'm gonna, I'll save that story for another time. Uh, you know, but one of my first tasks as a new firefighter was to learn where everything was. And so in our station, we had a, an ambulance, this heavy rescue truck, a, a ladder truck. And each one of these had tons of equipment on them. Doors everywhere, cabinets everywhere. And so I'd spend hours walking the trucks, opening the doors, trying to memorize where everything was because you weren't allowed to go out on a run until you knew where things were. And so eventually I learned it, I passed my test, uh, but then they told me to go back and learn it again, and, and I didn't totally understand what he meant at first. I just passed this test, surely I could go out now. And what he meant was I, I needed to, to know it, not just in my head, but I needed to, to know it in my body. So that way when the adrenaline was pumping, when every second counted, I needed to know without thinking where to go grab a tool. The success of our mission required a a deeper knowing. This morning, as we look together at at Paul's letter to the church in Ephesus, Paul's writing this from Rome. He's on house arrest, uh, probably chained to a a Roman soldier 24 hours a day. It's been maybe five, upwards of possibly 10 years since he's been in Ephesus. So there's some time passed since he's seen these people he loves. We know from history he's also just a a couple of years from his death. And in one of Paul's great prayers, he asks for a deeper knowledge. Paul prays that we wouldn't just know God, but that we would know God in the very depths of our being. And so let's read together from Ephesians chapter 1, starting in verse 15. And I invite you to even just hear this anew as Paul's prayer for you, as God's prayer for you. Ephesians 1, starting in 15. Paul says, For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. That the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him. Having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe? According to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, 
far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. So Paul is is praying for the church in Ephesus. Paul is praying for you and I that we would have a a deeper knowledge of God and his gospel. And he does this, I think, as he prays in, in three ways. With ceaseless praise, he prays for clear sight, and he prays for Christ's church. And he does this by beginning with the words, for this reason. He's telling us why he's praying in the first place. And so for this reason, your translation might even have the word therefore. So we have to kind of look back and see what is it that Paul is talking about at this point. And he's referencing the verses right before, verses 3 down to 14. It's one long 203-word sentence that expounds the full breadth and history of salvation. And he celebrates in that, in that sentence, first, the work of God to choose his people. In verse 3, it says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. And skipping down, in, in love he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ. And so before any creative act of God, he chose you. He knew knew you by name. He called you his own. He chose you for adoption to be his son, to be his daughter. Next, he he celebrates the work of God in cleansing you. In verse 7, he says, In Christ we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace. So the blood of Christ, it, it cleanses us from all sin, from all rebellion, and in return we're made pure and made holy through the perfect obedience of Christ. We're washed clean by the blood of the Lamb who was slain. God has cleansed you. And finally, he celebrates that God ensures the completion of his work Verses 13 and 14, he says, When you believed, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it. The Holy Spirit, he's the the down payment, the promise given to us that Christ will return, that Christ will complete his work. And so God chose you, God cleansed you, he guarantees the completion of his work in you. All of this under that heading of every spiritual blessing already ours, every blessing already given, already yours. Paul says, because of this, and because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, faith and love. Ephesians 2, 8, for by grace you have been saved through faith. This is the, the core of what we believe as Christians, that we have been saved by faith. In Jesus Christ. John 13, 35, Jesus says, By this all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. And so that that faith works its way out in love for God's people. These two 
great kind of irreducible characteristics of what it means to be a Christian. Faith in Jesus, love toward all the saints. Paul's telling us every Christian is both a, a believer and a lover. And what happens when Paul combines this recitation of truth with the, the knowledge of faith in Jesus? He praises God. He says, I do not cease to give thanks for you. you know, I remember uh, one, one Christmas as a kid, and I got a, a new football. It was flat in the box, so I, I filled it with air, ran outside with my siblings. It was a, a beautiful sunny day. I, I remember it real well. And so we played a lot. There was an elementary school just down the sidewalk from us. So we went up there playing on the playground. And as we're sliding or, or swinging, I remember hearing this loud bang. I didn't know what it was at first, but then I looked over and saw my poor little new football. One of the seams had ripped open and just destroyed it. You know, I think in my joy for my gift, I'd probably overfilled this thing with air. And then sitting out in the heat of the sun while we were playing, that, all those gas molecules start heating up, start expanding, and that little ball just couldn't hold it in anymore. It just burst open. You know, here in Paul's prayer, the glorious truth of the gospel is filling him up with air and his experience of the power of the gospel is heating him up and he bursts open in praise. I cannot stop giving thanks to God for you. I can't stop. I won't stop praising God. How do we become a people like that? A people of ceaseless praise? It's the same way Paul did. We know God more through his word. We, we dig and dig in scripture, mining it for truth, seeking to know God in it. And second, we, we know God more through his work. We look at the world around us. We share our story of salvation. We ask others to share their own. We start looking everywhere for evidence of God's grace, evidence of his presence in our lives. And your awareness of it grows and your praises will never cease. Look back, this, this life of ceaseless praise is the, the foundation upon which Paul is going to build his prayer. It's a, a praise of God that gives him the boldness to then go on and ask something big of God. Look at verse 16 with me. He says, again, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened. Paul says, he, he, I do not cease. And I think grammatically there's, there's two things he's not ceasing. First, that giving thanks. He won't stop giving praise to God. And second, he won't cease asking God for something Another translation I think draws this out really well when it says, I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ may give you a spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better. He can't stop praising God and he won't stop begging God for more. Paul isn't content with what they have. He's pestering God over and over. I want more for them, God, more and more. I keep asking of this. But it's interesting, isn't it, that he doesn't ask for more 
blessings. We remember at that beginning that every spiritual blessing in Christ is already theirs. So even though these Christians would have faced suffering and and persecution, though they would have struggled and doubted, they would have faced pain, Paul doesn't pray for deliverance and he doesn't even pray for peace. He prays that they would know more deeply what they already have in Christ. And this word know, it's not an intellectual knowledge, it's not propositions, it's not facts. There's other words that Paul could have used to express that idea for us. So he isn't necessarily telling us to study more, he isn't necessarily telling us to to learn more. The word he's using is more of a, a relational knowledge. It's the same type of word that's used back in Genesis 4 when it says, now Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain. Or Matthew 1, when the angel tells Joseph not to know Mary until Jesus gives birth to Jesus. Paul's using this word, he's using this imagery for us to, to kind of expand our imagination, to give you a category for relational intimacy with Christ, not just factual knowledge about Christ. All those things that Paul celebrated, that same God who who chose us and saved us, he knows you and you get to know him. Long before Christianity is about doing anything for God, long before it's about doing anything with God, Christianity is about knowing God. Jesus Christ made it possible for you and I to have a relationship with the creator of the universe, the God who loves you. D.A. Carson, a theologian and pastor, said it like this. He said, the one thing we most urgently need is a deeper knowledge of God. We need to know God better. We think rather little of what he's like, what he expects of us, and what he seeks in us. We're not captured by his holiness and his love. His thoughts and his words capture too little of our imagination. We're selfishly running after God's blessings without running after him. We're worse than a man who wants his wife's services without ever making the effort to know and love his wife and discover what she wants. We're worse than such a man, I say, because God is more than any wife. He is perfect in his love, and he has made us for himself. So do you know God well enough? That's not an indictment on you. That's an invitation from God to know him more. This is what Paul's praying for, begging God for. He wants us to, to know God with this deep, relational, indelible knowing. And he asks God for this, not just because he wants it for us, but because he knows there's something getting in our way of it. We can't get there on our own, by our own desire, by our own strength. Look back at Paul's words. He says, I I pray that God may give you a spirit or the spirit. I think he's referencing the, the Holy Spirit, that God may give you the Holy Spirit who gives wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him. Having the eyes of your hearts enlightened. There's something stuck in the eyes of our heads. We need to see it with the eyes of our hearts. You know, in biblical terms, heart wasn't used like we use it. We use heart to refer to deep emotion. But in the biblical world, they used gut or bowels for that. 
You know, on Valentine's Day, the kids learned to cut out and draw little intestines and little stomachs, and they'd write, you know, I love you from the depths of my bowels, mommy. But Paul isn't trying to stir up more emotions for God. In the Bible, the heart is the ruling center. It's the very core of your being. Paul is again talking about this life-impacting, all-encompassing, deep-in-your-bones knowledge of the person of God. How do we get there? How does this move from the eyes of our head to the eyes of our heart? Paul says it's by the presence of the Spirit opening our eyes. It's a spiritual vision that Paul is praying for, something we can't get apart from the presence and the power of the Holy Spirit. See, until the Spirit of God opens your eyes, the eyes of your heart are blind. What a wonderful thing. We can constantly be praying for ourselves and for one another. If your prayer life feels stuck by a a lack of knowing what to pray, you can praise God for the work he's already done in you and pray that the Spirit might cause you to know him more. In your shepherding group, those moments when it says, what are the prayer requests? How are we going to pray for one another? You're not sure what to say? Pray that God would open the eyes of your friends' hearts to know him better. Never going to wear that prayer out. And Paul tells us that as we know him better, as our hearts see this, we'll see the, the hope of God's calling, the riches of his inheritance, and the greatness of of God's power. First, Paul says he wants us to know the hope of God's calling. And and here, Paul is completing that great crowning triad of Christianity, faith, hope, and love. And Christian hope, it's first a, a confident, assured belief that everything God says is true. I like the way one author put it. He said, hope is faith on its tiptoes. In faith, we pull open that curtain and in hope we stretch out trying to peer over the windowsill into seeing what God is doing to see what God has in store. And over the last four months of this process of, of getting to know you guys and your elders and staff getting to know me, I think my family's made four, maybe five trips down to the upstate from Louisville. And if you're by yourself, it's not bad. It's about a six and a half hour trip by yourself. It could be no matter how long it is. That's a good trip because we have four kids and aged 10 months uh, to almost eight. And so instead of six and a half hours, it takes about six and a half weeks to get here. <laughs> you know, Deb and I, we don't make that trip because we love driving in the car with four kids for eight hours. We make it because we know it gets us here. It was the knowledge of our destination, the hope of our destination that sustained us So Paul is praying that we would know the hope of God so we wouldn't get hung up looking at the pain and the suffering and the sorrows of life. Because if your eyes get stuck there, you're hopeless. But if we believe that the Holy Spirit is the guarantee that we're headed toward the destination of eternally knowing God face to face, then this trip takes on a whole different perspective. Our hope is that we are going to be face-to-face, and that hope changes everything. Philippians 1.6, Paul says, and I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. 
says, I am sure of this. I am confident of this. I am hoping in this. God will finish what he began in you. The one who called you is faithful to you. But it's not just that God has called you. Remember this morning that God has called you. One of Christianity's great preachers, Charles Spurgeon, master at communicating with with just great truth and, and deep honesty in a sermon, Desire of the Soul in Spiritual Darkness, he, he writes this. He says, I think when a man says, I never doubt, it's quite time for us to doubt him. It's quite time for us to begin to say, ah, poor soul, I'm afraid you're not on the road at all. For if you were, you would see so many things in yourself and so much glory in Christ, more than you deserve that you would be so much ashamed of yourself as even to say it's too good to be true. The Christian life, it's not free of doubt. In fact, I think Spurgeon is saying that as we grow in the Christian life, we'll see more of our sin and realize how absolutely undeserving of it all we are. In some sense, the presence of doubt in your life is a sign that you're growing in Christ. The more you see the depths of your undeserving soul, the the larger the cross will loom over you. But Satan, he uses the presence of doubt to shield your eyes, to block its view. He wants you to believe in the power of the gospel, that it's in your belief, your belief in yourself, your worth, your faith even in your testimony. His plan is that when I see my sin, when I struggle to see my worth, when my faith is weak, then I find myself without hope. And that's exactly where he wants me to be. But the good news is the power of the gospel is holy in Christ, in his worth. So no matter how often you want to give up on yourself, No matter how deeply or often you doubt, God has called you and God has called you. He will not give up on you. That's the hope of his calling. Paul prays for a second promise. He says, I I want you to know the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. Malachi 3.17 says, On that day when I act, says the Lord Almighty, They will be my treasured possession. John 17, right, as Jesus is praying his great high priestly prayer, he says, Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given to me, may be with me where I am. Jesus suffered, died, rising again on the third day so that he might get you, so that he might inherit you. You are his treasured possession. He's anxiously waiting and praying and hoping and longing to be with you. Do you see yourself that way? Jesus does. And I think this is the truth that drove the Ephesians to be a people known for their love toward all the saints. Because when I see you as God's inheritance, I have to think about you differently and I have to treat you differently. I have to feel about you differently. And so that, that guy in your group who complains too much and talks too much, that married couple who's 
struggling and is just requiring too much of your physical and emotional energy. That person who just seems to drive you nuts. The people who wrestle with a sin that you don't and you just can't even understand how they could. Tired of serving when it seems like no one else around you is. Paul's saying our love for the saints isn't driven by their lovableness any more than Christ died for you because of your lovableness. Our love for one another, our service for one another, our sacrifice for one another is because each and every one of us is Christ's treasured and precious inheritance. In Christ, God loves you as you are unconditionally, not as you should be. None of us are as we should be. And that compels us to be a people who love one another deeply and unconditionally. Without a doubt. And it takes the power of the Spirit to open your eyes to see that, doesn't it? People and relationships are messy. But God, see, God sees your mess as his riches. And so should we. Paul then prays that the Spirit would enlighten the eyes of your heart that you might know what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe. You know, and this is, seems to be the one where Paul gets the most excited. I pray that you may know what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead, seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. He just starts spilling words just all over the place. And I think it's both in joy over the power of God and praise of it, but I think it's because he just can't even get anywhere close to remotely accurately describing how great God's power is. I think Paul trips up over the the absurdity of God's power. Because in all this, he's just being grammatically excessive. I mean, it's just over the top, too much language in one sense. So Paul is praying that we might know the unknowable, comprehend the incomparable, measure the immeasurable. And so he just gives us a a small little thing like God raising Jesus from the dead and says, if God can bring things back from the dead to life, is there anything outside his power. But where I think it gets really interesting is in Paul's description of the the expanse of Jesus's authority. Paul says that Christ is seated at the, the right hand of the Father, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion. And commentators, they spend hours trying to, to figure out these words, trying to define what means what, trying to differentiate them from each other. But I think Paul isn't so much trying to label a map with where God's reign is, as he is celebrating the totality of God's reign. If Christ's reign is over every rule, authority, power, dominion, name, and age, then where is he not fully and completely and powerfully in charge? This is why Abraham Kuyper once said, there is not a square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, mine. And that's why I think Paul then points to the necessity of God's power. He says it's the immeasurable 
power toward us who believe or according to us who believe. Later in this letter in in 3, 7, he says, I was made a gospel according to the gifts of God's grace. It's that, that same kind of phrasing. He was made a minister as a consequence of God's grace. And so I think Paul is saying here that even our faith, our very belief is to be attributed to the power of God. All belief is a consequence of his mighty power. And so the fact that you believe this morning, that you want to believe, that you want to want to believe, wherever it is, it's proof of the presence and the power of God in you. If you don't see this, if you can't see this, if you think your faith and your desire is something that comes from within you, then you're failing to see the true beauty and glory of God. The best way to experience, the best way to get this truth out of the eyes of our head is to just move towards it. Years ago, I I took a group of college students on a, a trip to the Grand Canyon. I spent weeks planning this trip. We were going to hike from, from rim to river to rim, spending, spending a night uh, down in the canyon. I was responsible for these students, and so I planned everything, super excited about the trip, got together, walked them up through everything, showed them pictures, got them excited. But we just didn't just read about it and call it a trip. We went there. That's because you don't sense the grandeur of that canyon. In a book, you experience it by, by feeling the pain in your knees and the cold water of the Colorado on your toes. See, the eyes of our hearts are open to the power of God as we move towards God. To not just read about the river, but to let it wash over us. To not just occasionally dip our toes in these truths, not just occasionally dive in. We need a steady and frequent rhythm of slowly swimming and soaking in this truth. Spending time with God in his word, spending time in prayer with his people. We move toward Christ. We move away from sin, away from all the things that would compete for our time and attention. Doesn't this give you hope for the Christian life? That there's more. There's more you haven't seen, more you don't know. There's more of God for you. And Paul prays that we would know God more as the Spirit gives us eyes to see his hope and his riches and his power. Third, Paul prays this for us. He prays the gospel deeper into our soul by praying for Christ's church. Look at verse 22 says he put all things under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Two things to see here. First, the church is Christ's body. And second, Christ's body is incomplete. The church is Christ's body, and Christ's body is incomplete. When the Son of Man came to earth, he took on a body. Everything Jesus did, he did in his body. Grew up physically in that body, suffered in that body, ate, 
drank, wept, he laughed, cried, died in that body. His body was resurrected. He ascended to the Father in that body. He reigns even now in that body. And Paul says that we are Christ's body. So Christ reigns in his body and Christ reigns through his body, the church. And we see this metaphor all over Paul's writing. Uh, 1 Corinthians 12, he says, Now you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. And, and, and earlier in that passage, he's, or in that chapter, he says, for just as, one bo- just as the body is one and has one, many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. And Paul loves this body metaphor. He uses it when he talks about a lot of things, unity and, and spiritual gifts. And I, I kind of think Paul first started to glimpse this metaphor, started to love it, way back before he was a follower of Christ. You might remember, Paul was a great persecutor of Christians. He's breathing out threats against the Lord's disciples. And you might remember the, the vision that, that Paul has of God. And what does God say to him? He says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? He doesn't say, why are you persecuting the church? He says, why are you persecuting me? Jesus has so aligned himself with his people, with his church, that he sees us as his very own body. We are intimately linked to him in the same way your head and your body are intimately linked together. And so Christ is our head. Why is is Paul telling us this? It's because everything Christ does in the world today, he does through his body, the church. Paul is adding yet another sphere to the totality of Christ's reign. He is the head over everything for the church. A church without Jesus as its head is as weak as a human body without a head. It's as lost as a human body wandering around without a head. We're here to know and proclaim the hope and riches and power of Jesus, our head. And so Jesus is our head. But he also says the body, the church, is incomplete. He says he's the, Christ is the fullness of him who fills all in all. And since this filling has not yet fully and finally happened, there's a sense in which the body of Christ is incomplete. I'm going to find some safety in this argument uh, with my buddy John Calvin. He said it this way. He said, this is the highest honor of the church, that until he is united to us, the Son of God reckons himself in some measure imperfect. What consolation it is for us to learn that not until we are along with him does he possess all his parts or wish to be regarded as complete. So this doesn't mean there's some defect in Christ. It doesn't mean that he's less than holy or perfectly or eternally God. That's why Paul says he fills all in all. Christ doesn't need us. He isn't defective apart from us. Rather, I think he's referencing how closely connected the body and the head, 
the church and Christ are connected in the mind and the heart of God. This makes me think of years ago uh, when Deb and I first got married back in 2008 over in Spartanburg. We moved into a house we had purchased five months prior, closed on January 2nd. Great time to buy a house. You know, I lived in that house while she lived at home with her parents. But we had started to move her things in. Uh, she was decorating, arranging, arranging. Her name was on the mortgage with me. It was our house. But it was incomplete. She didn't fully live there yet. There was something missing. It was the, the fullness of her presence was missing. So it was incomplete. See, in himself, Christ is complete. He's perfect. It's the, the church, his body, to which he's now eternally and intimately connected as head, is incomplete, making the whole incomplete. There's people yet missing, and we're yet awaiting the fullness of Christ's presence with us at his return. And so even now, God is filling up his incomplete body with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord. That's that great passage in Habakkuk, the knowledge of the glory of the Lord covering the earth as the waters cover the sea. Christ is filling every sphere of existence with his glory and knowledge of God, and he's doing it through the church, through his body. Pastor John Piper says this. He says, God aims to fill the universe with the glory of his son, Jesus, by making the church the showcase of his perfections. Or to put it another way and include the idea of body, God means to fill the universe with the glory of his son by putting the church on display as the embodiment of his son. Christ fills the universe with his glory by showing the universe his body, how he chose her, how he destined her, how he came for her and taught her and suffered for her and died for her and rose for her and reigns for her, how he called her and justified her and cleansed her and kept her and will raise her and glorify her and satisfy her forever and ever with himself. Piper says the church in God's eyes is the, the showcase of God's perfections. Heritage, God means for you to be the showcase of his perfections. He reigns above all and he holds you up. And he says, look at the church, look at my body. Look at the church and you'll see Christ. All those lesser rules, all those authorities and powers and reigns and dominions, they're fighting back, aren't they? Pushing back on the message of the beauty and glory of Christ. I think this is ultimately why Paul keeps asking, keeps pestering, keeps begging God in prayer that you and I might know God more. You need to know God more because of his infinite worth. And those rulers will tell you that anything and everything is more worthy of your time and more worthy of your energy than Jesus and his church. But praise God, he is at work in you. He is at work in me accomplishing his mission in me. And God is at work accomplishing his mission through you. 
The world is telling your lost neighbors and, and coworkers and family that Christ isn't worthy. But in his infinite wisdom, God gives us this prayer, a prayer that we will know him better so that we will not give up. He draws you into himself. He, he fills you with himself and he sends you back out. Paul is praying the gospel into your bones so that you might go out and declare the unsearchable riches of Christ in the valley of dry bones. The good news, all things have been placed under his feet. The church will complete its mission. That's God's plan. That's God's promise. The entire resurrecting power of God guarantees it. Will you pray with me? God, we gather together this morning not to make ourselves known, but to know you. God, we gather not to declare our wisdom, but to proclaim and preach and sing yours. God, there are so many things that want to capture our attention. So many things that want to blind us from seeing and knowing you more. So God, by the the presence of your spirit, by the power of the spirit living in us, God, would you open our eyes to see you today? whether for the the first time this morning or for the thousandth time, God, may we leave here seeing you and knowing you, knowing deep in our bones in a way that won't go away, the height and breadth and love of God that is ours in Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.